alcohol is a perceived reward. We give ourselves this reward that everyone else says we're supposed to have. We deserve it or we need it. And alcohol affects fundamentally how your brain operates. Thomas Edison, Richard Branson, John F. Kennedy, Mozart, Michael Jordan, Will Smith. That sounds like a list of highly successful titans in a variety of vocations. Why is it that we rarely hear that they have or had ADHD? And you know what we hear even less about? Serena Williams, Emma Watson, Mel Robbins, Whoopi Goldberg, Agatha Christie, Aaron Brockovich, Cher. Yeah, the successful women navigating ADHD. And that's exactly why I started this podcast, ADHD for Smartass Women. I'm your host, Tracy Otsuka. I'm a lawyer, not a doctor, a lifelong student, now a coach. I'm also the creator of Your ADHD Brain is A-OK, a system that helps people like you figure out what they should do with their life. And we're here today to talk ADHD, your strengths, your symptoms, your workarounds, and how you proudly stand out instead of trying to fit in. I credit my ADHD for some of my greatest gifts. And you know what? I spy a happier life for you too. So without further ado, a shiny new episode is starting now. Hello, hello, hello. I am your host, Tracy Otsuka. Thank you so much for joining me here for episode number 247, yikes, of ADHD for Smartass Women. I hope that you'll subscribe to this podcast and our newsletter over at tracyoutsuka.com. You know my purpose is always to show you who you are and then inspire you to be it. And then the thousands of ADHD women that I've had the privilege of meeting I've never met a one that wasn't truly brilliant at something. And so, of course, I am just delighted to introduce to you today, Amanda Kuda. Hi, Tracy. Hi. So I'm just going to say a little bit about who you are so our audience, listeners, they know who we're talking to today. So Amanda is a holistic life coach. She's a speaker and author who lives in Austin, Texas. Amanda, I was literally just in Austin, Texas as of Sunday. Oh, dang, I missed you. What a fun, I didn't know that you lived in Austin. What a fun town. Mm-hmm. I've been there twice now in the last, oh, I don't know, four months or so. What a young, vibrant, fun, well, we'll talk about it, I'm sure, as far as uh, <laughs> drinking culture <laughs> that we have over there. Anyway, Amanda helps ambitious women stop drinking and start manifesting the life that they deserve and desire. She teaches a modern approach to personal development, self-actualization, and spiritual enlightenment through the lens of elective sobriety. Amanda's first book with Penguin Random House Avery. Congratulations. I know how hard that is. Yes. Thank you. Is called Unbottled Potential, Break Up with Alcohol, and Break Through to Your Best Life. And it hits shelves October 3rd. That's next week. Amanda was diagnosed with ADHD in her 20s and tried multiple modalities to manage her ADHD, only to realize that the habit change that benefited her the most was removing alcohol from her lifestyle. So again, Amanda, welcome. And did I get all of that right? You got it. You nailed it. Wonderful. So 
if you've listened to the podcast at all, you know that I always want to start out with your ADHD diagnosis story first, because Mm -hmm. I think it helps you connect to our listeners. Yes. Well, no, tell me what happened. Absolutely. You know, I went through high school and college as kind of just coasting through, like everything seemed really easy. The structure of being a student always came very naturally to me. And then when I got into the corporate world, something happened and I suddenly felt... So one second. So college, no problem with the transition from high school to college, which we typically see in ADHD? Not really, because for me, you know, college actually was very stimulating where high school, like half the time, Tracy, I was like not doing my homework. I was studying at the very last minute, super procrastinator. And then some stuff at home. I think that college was a time where I thrived because I had this freedom and accountability and I didn't have to worry about all the family stuff that, you know, I hadn't had to worry about before. Now, certainly there were some classes that I didn't do as well in, but for the most part, the structure of being a student really, really worked for me. And then when I got to grad school, that's when I I even shined even more because it was so much more concentrated and I was focused on something that I was really interested in. And I could be the class perfectionist or whatever. I was, you know, I could raise my hand and share my opinion so much more freely than I was able to. And, you know, as someone with ADHD, I just love to talk. So love to raise that hand and share what I had learned from from whatever we were reading or studying. But when I entered the corporate world, there was suddenly no structure. You just got there at eight o'clock and left at five and there was no one telling you what to do. And for better or worse, I happened into a job that had a lot of ambiguous structure to it. And so there was a lot of room for me to make the rules. And that did not work for me very well. And I I kept wondering, what is wrong with me? Why am I suddenly so incapable? And the only times that I felt really on fire is when there was a deadline looming and there was like an event approaching that I had to be accountable to. And that's when I just switched into high drive and all the ideas were flowing and I suddenly knew what to do. I didn't need a to-do list. I could track everything in my mind. It's like this like map was just like rolling through my brain. And in the middle times where I had a lot of freedom and, and there wasn't a lot of a lot of structure, that's when I really floundered. And so I finally went to my therapist and I said, I think there's something wrong with me. Like I just feel stupid and incapable. And it feels really scary because I know that I'm not that, but I just can't make myself focus on anything. I can't make myself, especially do some of the really mundane tasks that came with my job, could not do it. Like, I I just couldn't, I could not do it, Tracy. And you know, you know the drill. And so we did, you know, the however many point tests. And she's like, yeah, so you have ADHD. You probably need to go. You can go get some medication for that. I'm like, cool, great. And that was such a freeing thing because I had never, never even thought that was a possibility because, you know, my my younger brother has ADHD as well, but for boys and girls, it doesn't manifest the same. So I had no idea that that could be a possibility for me. So it was really freeing for her to say, yeah, hey, by the way, there's nothing wrong with you. This is what's going on. So did you try medication? I did. I tried every type of medication under every formula. Yes. And... There were parts of it that I really, really liked because it did seem so helpful, but I'm also someone who's highly sensitive. So it's like every form of a stimulant just really didn't do so well with me. So eventually I I decided to go no medication and I've tried a lot of other holistic approaches since then. Do you struggle with coffee, caffeine? I mean, 
<laughs> no, not not too much. As long as I, you know, I have my coffee here. Um, okay. But as long as I know when the cutoff point is, okay. I am fine with coffee. It's actually pretty good for me. Okay. So I'm curious, what was Amanda like as a child? She was very imaginative and creative, very witchy and mystical. I always remember the first time that I saw the movie Matilda, I remember thinking, that's me. Like, I'm weird like that. Like, I can't do telekinesis, but, you know, maybe someday, Tracy, I'll get to that point. But I remember, yes, I remember feeling so, like, associated with that character because I always kind of had this thing where I felt like I fit in better with my teachers and could converse with my teachers better than my peers. Always felt a little strange as if I saw the world in a different way. But I was very creative, very imaginative. I knew from a very young age that I was going to be on a stage of some sort and also writing a book. I remember specifically in second grade was when all of these things kind of started to materialize for me. But I lived in a super small town, very closed-minded. So some of those ideas and ways of thinking and being seemed pretty impermissible for a little kid. Like it didn't seem like the way to be. So I got pretty good at camouflaging some of those more eccentric and whimsical parts of myself so that I could fit in with the other kids. And I was very, very good at that. I knew exactly, you know, how to act for the most part to be like everyone else, even though there was this side of me that was yearning to be more expressive and more creative. So did you have any friends that you felt like that person is really like me, like I can really relate to her or him? Or were you always kind of camouflaging just to fit in? Always kind of camouflaging, you know, and in high school, I did have my my best, best friend and we just were bosom buddies. But through grade school and junior high, no, I was, I felt like the biggest outcast and found a really, I had, I was always in the social circles, but I never felt like I belonged there and that I really fit in. So once you knew it was ADHD and you had the benefit of hindsight, What are some of the symptoms that you always wondered about, but now you recognize them as clearly ADHD? Well, I remember as you were talking, I remember this one time, a lot of these, like I said, second grade was a very pivotal time in in my like figuring out who I who I needed to be. And I remember I got moved to sit at the back of the class next to the teacher. And looking back now, Tracy, I must have been yammering quite a bit to get moved to the back of the class because I was a very good kid. But I remember thinking, oh, I'm like, I thought I was like getting promoted. Like I was her assistant or something. I don't remember thinking I was in trouble. Like I remember offering to help her grade papers. I'm like, man, I'm in it now. She recognized (laughs) my talent. I'm going to be like the teacher's assistant. But guaranteed, I don't remember this, but I had to have been talking too much. Like, can't you imagine? There's no other reason you got moved to the back of the class. So all of these things started to make sense once I looked back and started to kind of remember some of the little things that had been parts of my childhood where I didn't think twice about it before. But now after I had a diagnosis, I'm like, oh, that's probably why I got moved to the back of the class. This makes sense now. Were you chatty? I mean, were you, do you remember constantly being told to stop talking? I don't. That's the thing. But why else would I have gotten moved? Maybe we need to contact Mrs. Sunbrock, my second grade teacher, and ask why I got moved to the back. But remember, right? Yeah. But I, I had to have been talking too much. I had to have been. 
Although, wouldn't they move you to the front of the class if you're talking too much? I always got moved to the front of the class. Oh, well, the, her desk was in the back. So that's where I was. I was like at her desk, which is also why I thought I was there to help her. <laughs> yeah, so maybe it was that. <laughs> so what has changed since you were diagnosed? And what? how old were you then when you were diagnosed? I want to say 23 to 25-ish, right after, yeah, right after grad school. And it just gave me this permission slip to look at productivity and my capability in a different way. You know, I'd read all of these productivity books, by the way, most of them by men. And I started, you know, I started realizing, wait a second, what they say you're supposed to do, I don't think it quite works for me. Yes. Right. And so I realized I needed a different approach. And I started looking up tools that, you know, were, and at this time, there weren't a ton of things on the market about productivity and ADHD. So, like, thank God for like your program and other, especially women who have come on the scene to teach women about women with ADHD because it's very different than how it manifested for boys and for my brother. And so, having these different tools available to me and realizing like I really operate best when I make analog lists. Things on a computer are kind of imaginary to me. So having my analog list is so is so freeing. And it's just like, wow, had I only known that this wasn't this nerdy thing that I was enjoying, it actually is very helpful and productive for my brain. It's just enlightening. It's such a simple thing that changed that has helped me to just be more focused and to honor like, I am more focused and productive from the time I wake up to about 3 p.m. And if I can cram my work into that period, that's great. So some of the other productivity tactics that are, you know, going crazy on the internet, good for those people that it works for. But for me, this is how I operate because I'm a unique human being and I'm going to embrace that and do those things. Yeah, no, that makes uh, that makes complete sense. So... I want to know what made you decide to write this book. <laughs> this book, I kind of had like a moral calling to write this book. So the part of my journey that we need to fill you in on is that through one of the ways that my different little self figured out how to fit in in late high school was to start partying and drinking alcohol because there was that very gregarious, eccentric part of me that wanted to come out, but I also came from a single parent divorce family. So we didn't have a ton of money and I didn't feel like I was permitted to be that bold, outgoing version of me. Like that was for the popular rich kids and I was not that. So when I got to the point where I realized that, oh, there's this like magical elixir that everyone's using that can make me feel a little less intimidated about being outgoing I really embraced that. So alcohol for me from the time I was a teen to late 20s was this tool to help me kind of quiet the chatter in my mind that says you're different from everyone else and also allowed me to come out of my shell and be this kind of magnanimous personality that sometimes in regular everyday life, I didn't have the guts to be. And when you make an association with something, it's it's almost like too for, um, you know, when I first started ADHD medication, I believed I needed that to be the best version of me, just like I believed I needed alcohol to come out of my shell and to get along in social situations and not feel awkward. And so I did that throughout my 20s and I got to about 28 and I started to feel like, I think there's actually something bigger picture 
that I've gotten wrong. I feel like I have fallen onto all these paths, the corporate job, you know, the house, the having, ticking all the boxes. And I think that maybe this path just in general is not meant for me. And I started to really to lean into my uniqueness and my authenticity and who I was, embracing these little these little things I learned about myself. And I I started to think that maybe alcohol was not to fit in the picture any longer. I started to feel that there was something more, something more expansive for me if I removed this habit from the picture. And, you know, Tracy, for me, that was really intimidating because I had such an association with this is who allows, this is what allows me to have a social life. And yet there was still this nagging that there's something more for you. There's something more. And so after a lot of fighting and a lot of trying to negotiate, I decided um, that I was just going to take a break from alcohol, even though I hadn't hit any sort of rock bottom. I wasn't having any sort of problems that I could document at work or in life. I just felt like it was holding me back. And when I took that break, it led to a longer break, led to some personal breakthroughs. And then I decided I'm not actually, I don't think I'm going to drink anymore. And what transpired after I stopped drinking alcohol was that my potential, my authenticity, my magic came online at a level that I hadn't before been able to access it. So, you know, if we're looking at the timeline, I got my ADHD diagnosis 2325, but I'd been self-medicating since 17, 18 with alcohol. Now, all of a sudden, I know this miraculous thing about myself and I figured out some ways to, to kind of make it a superpower. And two, I decided to take away any sort of shortcuts that I'd been using, which was what alcohol was. All of a sudden, I started to develop this level of self-confidence in myself and Mm. how I could show up in the world and actually be myself and how that was actually very beautiful. And I started to think and process and create at a whole different level. I left the corporate world. I started my own business. And so, hang on one second. I want to know time timelines. Time so, yeah, yeah, yeah. 23 to 25 diagnosed. When around did this happen? How old were you then? I was 28 when I kind of got the itch to stop drinking, okay. but I was 31 when I finally stopped. And then I was 35 when I quit my corporate job and decided to become an entrepreneur. Okay. So do you think your ADHD diagnoses had anything to do with even the thought that, you know what, everybody's doing this. It's what's socially acceptable, but it doesn't feel good to me. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. It gave me this permission to realize that maybe I wasn't quite made up like everyone else. And that was okay. When before it was all I wanted to do was fit in. Now I was kind of embracing this like, I'm a unique human being, damn it. So when you were diagnosed with ADHD, was there any shame or was it much more empowering where, okay, now I'm starting to understand why I do what I do? Mm. I think there was still a little shame because there still weren't that many resources around to help me identify what that actually meant. But as as I edged into it... Did you tell your it, friend? I think I probably told a couple of my close friends, but this was mm. also during a time where... Um, Getting getting a hold of, you know, Adderall or Ritalin was very, I mean, I guess it probably still is kind of like posh to help other people like who don't actually need it. So I was a little afraid people were going to ask me if they could have some of it. So I actually kept that very close to me. I was like, yeah. nope, this is this is something that is just for me. I don't want people trying to like 
talk me out of this or anything. So I actually kept it pretty quiet. Okay. So can you share with us that point in time when you said to yourself, I think I'm just going to, I think it was the dry January. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You share, it's the New Year's Eve story that you share mm-hmm. in your book. Can you yes. just kind of walk us through that? Oh, totally. So I had really tried to start moderating alcohol because I knew that it was no longer working for me. And on New Year's Eve Eve, I went out with the intention to moderate, to just have a few. And I got talked into going out with the cool girls and ended up having a few too many. And I woke up on New Year's Eve with a terrible hangover. And I just felt so disgusting. It was just dragging through the day. Didn't even know if I could make it out for the New Year's Eve celebration. And it was oh, somewhere this during... Before New Year's Eve. Right. Okay. This, is not, this is not New Year's Eve. It's New Year's Eve Eve. So, pre-game. Yeah, pre-game. And the pre-game took me out for the count. So on New Year, <laughs> this is, these are just like typical party girl things that would yeah. constantly happen to me though. And so then on the actual New Year's Eve, I barely drank. And on New Year's Day, we met up for brunch and I thought, this is it. I'm tired of living this life. I'm tired of this. I'm going to take a break and see what happens. And that's what kind of started this whole investigation into, could my life be better without alcohol? You know, And that was a really bold thought, because if you think about it, you're in Austin, right? Yes. It's not like you have any family there or do you have like old friends there? This is all um, your whole social circle. Yeah. Right. My whole social circle were drinkers. Your whole social circle was drinkers. Okay. Mm -hmm. So how did you even think that through? I mean, were you worried that, oh, my gosh, that I'm going to lose all my friends or were you tired of them at that point and thinking, I need different friends. I was fairly certain I was going to lose all of my friends. I I was fairly certain and very terrified. And yet I felt so kind of impassioned that I needed to give this a try or I would always regret it that I just kind of put my foot down. And I said, you know, I'm going to do this come hell or high water. Several of my friends signed up to do it with me and they had fallen off by the first weekend, Tracy. And that made me feel even more stubborn. I was, you know, when they started to fall off, I was like, forget that. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it right. I'm not cheating. I'm not, you know, having just one. I'm going to go the whole month. And that felt really powerful. So at that point, I kind of decided, you know, if I do lose my friends, I'll figure it out. I, th- it gave me this like internal power and fire that just was kind of just ornery and stubborn. And for better or for worse, it just kept me going. And you must have, um, just had this sense that these people weren't your people. And if you continued on that path, you were going to even be less of who you are. Yeah, because I had been trying to fit in with the cool crowd my entire life. And not that there was anything, I'm still actually friends with a good handful of those people. But I realized I couldn't keep like stuffing myself in a box just because that's the box everyone else was in, you know? And the tool by which I did that was with drinking. There was no way once I had that social lubricant out of my system that I was going to be able to keep conforming in the way that I had. And so I just kind of decided like, if these aren't my friends, then, you know, thank God, Austin is a huge city. So I had the wherewithal to know like, there's other people here. Like if these people ditch me or if I need to ditch them, thank God, there are more people and hundreds of people moving here every day. So I'm going to find other people. But 
it was kind of terrifying and intimidating because, you know, as a people pleaser, as someone who's always tried to fit in, I didn't want to disappoint anyone or have anyone judge me. Yeah. So why are high achieving ADHD women more likely to use alcohol to manage their ADHD? Because we know there's definitely a link between addiction and ADHD. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think that one of the reasons is because of this sense of feeling different and wanting to fit in. And there's also this other sense of wanting to quiet our minds. I have Mm. so many women who I work with who at the end of the day, they just want to shut it off. They just want to stop thinking. And what does alcohol do but help you to stop thinking? And the problem is, though, that our minds want to think. So we're just taking away this natural process, right? And we're doing ourselves a disservice. So there's there's two different reasons that I've come into contact with. Is One is it helps us um, feel less socially awkward if we've always been kind of that person who didn't quite feel like we fit in or felt like we were a little more um, outgoing and we needed something to make that outgoingness feel okay. So if you're going to be wild and crazy, it's because you're drinking alcohol, right? Not because that's just how you are. Yeah. And then yeah. also that that little shut off the shut off the thinking mechanism is something that um I certainly experience and I know a lot of women who I work with experience. You know, and I wonder too as you're sitting here speaking um if it could also be if you are wild and crazy and hyperactive mm-hmm. it gives you permission to be actually who you really are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But there's still this this facade, right? In order to be who you really are, yeah, you have to be drinking. Right. So we get ourselves in this really bad mm. mental loop of mm-hmm. of what we what we need in order to for that to be permitted for us to be our wild and crazy self. And it's just really toxic and unfortunate, but this is certainly how I felt and how I've had this communicated to me time after time again from my really high achieving clients who are ADHD diagnosed or undiagnosed. Yeah. Yeah. There's also something called reward deficiency syndrome. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that? Yeah, yeah. Do you want to do you want to explain it? Give like a layman's. Well, I mean, reward deficiency syndrome is basically that our brains don't make enough dopamine, and so what that means is we feel less motivation to work mm-hmm. towards a reward. But once we actually reach our goal and we get to the reward, we feel less satisfaction from this reward. And I think this is exactly why we always feel like we've never accomplished enough. In college, I used to call it post-final depression. Uh Like all of my friends, right, would be so excited about the end of finals. And we were going to go out and, you know, probably doing the same thing you were Uh doing in college, right? We're going to go out. We're going to party. We're going to do all this fun stuff. And that's what would keep them going. And it would kind of keep me going too. But then once the finals were over, I would be like, wait, why aren't I excited like they're excited? Mm -hmm. And so what ended up happening for me, it was always, okay, next. That wasn't good enough. I didn't celebrate that achievement. I was just on to the next achievement. Yeah. And when we do that, you know, it just makes it really hard for us to like live life that way, right? Because you don't get to either slow down or have this moment of really feeling into your emotions. And so what happens with women who are on this kind of like, are are experiencing this is that alcohol just, number one, it's a perceived reward. So we give ourselves this reward that everyone else says we're supposed to have, we deserve it or we need it. And 
alcohol affects fundamentally how your brain operates. So it definitely floods your brain with this instant hit of feel goodness before, of course, taking you back down. But because we get this instant hit that we've been looking for, that we think that we don't know how to get on our own, that it helps us achieve this feeling that we've been seeking or we've been thinking we need to have to be normal like everyone else. And it's just kind of a false reward system that we that we put ourselves through before kicking ourselves in the shin because we know we never feel great afterwards. Yeah, yeah. And if you're not, if you're the kind of person who you, okay, I, I get a glass of wine, right? Uh-huh, yep. And I'm looking forward to that glass of wine. And then I drink that glass of wine and I'm like, I didn't get as much of a reward as I thought I was going to get. So uh-huh. now I'm going to do a more, one, right? Yep. Or cake or whatever, yes. right? Uh-huh. That's going to make me feel better. And nah, maybe a third one will do it. I can see how, you know, this just over time, very short period of time could just literally spiral out of control. Yeah, absolutely. The more is more kind of concept. And I explain this in my book through a concept that Gretchen Rubin, who's a podcaster and an author, really breaks down. But even adding that that ADHD spectrum on top of that is very, very interesting because she says that people are innately moderators or abstainers. And some people just have the glass of wine and that's their result is perfect. They don't need more. It's just like, I just wanted that taste and I'm good. And then for people like you or I, it's all or nothing. It's okay, I had that. And now, yes, I should have more because I can handle more or I didn't quite get the feeling that I wanted. So I do want a little more or you know, even just, right? Yes, absolutely. I'm going to have it. Yep, absolutely. Someone asks you or someone else is doing it and you're like, oh, hell, why not? And it makes it really difficult to decipher, okay, is this, I mean, there's so many things muddled in that. There is, you know, you might be just someone who is, is all or nothing. You also might have this reward deficiency. You also might be someone who is just, you know, trying to achieve a certain feeling. And so, For me, when I look back at it, in fact, had I been able to put all these pieces together at the time, I'm just like, wow, I was doing myself a massive, of course, alcohol is not bad, wrong, or evil, but it's just also not good for your brain and body. And I was doing myself a massive disservice by in like bringing this thing into my life. And especially on such a frequent basis, you know, I was, I was drinking every weekend. And so I just think about like what a, kind of wonky variable I put into this system that was already, I was already trying to figure out in the first place. And wow, I just, I really did myself a massive disservice by, by introducing this substance because it fundamentally changes the way your brain functions. And I just, I just wish I would have known that all those years ago. Yeah. And beyond that, what I learned recently, well, not so recently, but alcohol prevents REM sleep. Our brains want it all. We love anything that is new, bright, sparkly, different. But that's often what keeps us distracted and feeling all over the place. So I have something that I know can help you. It's my free masterclass called What Do I Do With My Life From Chaos to Confidence? This popular class will give you the tools to make faster, more confident decisions that actually serve you so you're doing what you really want to do instead of what others are telling you that you should do. You know, we try so hard to fit in when in reality, that's the problem. With our ADHD brains, our brilliant ADHD brains, we're not meant to fit in. We're actually meant to stand out. 
So that begs the question, where are we actually meant to stand out? Join me at spyhappy.me forward slash MC. That's spyhappy.me forward slash MC. And let's find out together. Now, let's get back to our podcast. Alcohol prevents REM sleep. And REM sleep is free therapy. Yes. It's what helps us regulate our emotions. And so if we're not getting any of that, because of alcohol, how does that affect just how you feel in your relationships and blah, blah, blah? Oh, I mean, you are just running on empty to sleep for those people. And also, you know, I can imagine, I don't think I was ever drinking on the days I was taking my medication, but I can imagine for some of those people who maybe take their medication a little too late and kind of are feeling a little zippy at bedtime, using that downer of, or the, the like a glass of wine to kind of get back into that sleepy feeling probably felt maybe very necessary. And yeah, it completely messes with your sleep. The sleep you get on alcohol is a quarter as effective as what you would normally have. And um, I wish also I have an aura ring on. Aura has some really interesting data. Yes, there you go, girl, Um, on on how alcohol disrupts your sleep. And it's just, it's, it's really depressing because, and literally depressing you. Um, and keeping you from having the the nourishment that your body needs to get up and go the next day. That's a really good point. When we are not aware, we just remain blind, right? And I can see where if your whole social structure, you already have insecurities, and your whole social structure is built around the whole drinking culture, you don't even want to know. And so it's almost like, If you can make yourself aware of how alcohol is affecting your life, that's that first little thing that you do that kind of moves you forward to maybe saying, okay, I'm not going to drink for 30 days. And so things like I I just we never had these, but things like aura rings are so amazing in so many ways because they give us awareness of how these things we're doing whether not getting enough sleep, whether drinking, whether not exercising or exercising, how it affects our life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have so much data at our fingertips now. It's hard to say ignorant unless you want to. And there, there were points in my life where I certainly wanted to, but now I don't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So what are some of the questions that you asked yourself that, well, let me back up. So one of the things that I say all the time is everything we do in life is with the goal of feeling better. But often we forget the feel part, right? And so, you know, as I said, we're drinking that one glass of wine. Okay, I'm trying to feel better. So I'm going to have a second glass, but that second glass really doesn't make us feel better. So then we do the third glass of wine. So we're doing these things to make ourselves feel better. But in the process, we're forgetting to feel, right? And so you did something right way back in, I think it was 2017, right? New Year's Mm -hmm. Eve, 2017. You got it. You said, I'm going to start trusting my intuition and I'm going to pay attention to how I feel. What are some of the questions that you asked yourself that if one of our listeners is, you know, listening to this conversation right now and they're thinking, I'm also questioning how much I'm drinking. What are some of the things that you could share with them that maybe they could consider? That was a big old disjointed question, but hopefully you understand the gist of it. My brain just followed right along with you. (laughs) (laughs) We're on the same page. Don't worry. The first thing that I want you to do is to throw out 
the tired question that we've been taught to ask around alcohol, which is, do I have a problem? And we've been conditioned that this is the first place that we go. And by the way, if you have a problem, that's okay. But there are so many of us who are just using alcohol in that normal, everyone's doing it the same way, social, casual, stale, that asking, do I have a problem is actually a safety net for you to not look at it, right? It's a way for you to say, oh, no, 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 I don't have a problem. So no need to move any further. And I think that throwing out that question and instead asking, is it possible that alcohol is creating problems, inefficiencies, undue stress in my life? And if the answer to that is maybe, then I think that you should keep going and ask, is it possible that my life could be any way better, lighter, more joyful, more authentic without alcohol? Do I like who I am? Do I really like who I am and how I feel when I'm drinking and after I'm drinking? And sometimes there will be some ambiguity there because that ego part of our mind wants to say, well, yes, I need this. I do like that version of me. But then there's another part of your mind that says, oh, no, but the part of me that feels pitiful afterwards for days and days and days or feels kind of foggy, that part of us is frustrating and I think that if we can ask better questions that don't have to do with just, oh, do I have a problem? No, okay, never mind. Then we can start to get a little more curious about, is this something that I'm doing because I want to and it makes me feel good or because I think I need to and everyone told me I should? And when we can get down to those types of questions, they're very humbling, but it can lead you to a really expansive opportunity, I think. What I love that you use is the term, I think it's gray zone? Yeah, gray area. Mm -hmm. Oh, gray area. Okay. And do you use the term gray area clients? I, you know, my one of my mentors, her name is Jolene Park. She kind of coined the term gray area drinkers. And these are the people who drink in the, not the dark area, the black area. Uh, and again, I don't like these these phrases, but it's like, just go, well, you know, addiction, that that space. Right. And they're also not the very light, airy, once every now and again, glass of champagne type of drinkers. They're the normal drinkers, quote unquote, normal. And there's a huge range of that. And technically, the bulk of people who drink fall into the gray area, the people who have a very problematic or an every now and again relation with alcohol, that makes up a very small percentage of the population. Most of us are in this gray area where it could go either way. Sometimes it's fine and sometimes it's not so fine. And it's really important to acknowledge that that gray area exists and that's a place where you can still question the relationship and it's okay to do that. Well, I remember in your book, you went and you met with your therapist Mm -hmm. And you brought up this idea. Well, why don't you tell the story? Yeah. So this is not the same therapist that um, diagnosed me with ADHD. I had moved to Austin at this point and had a new therapist. And she was she was great. No, no ill intent. But in the therapy world, you know, they have the DSM-5 and the different scales that they use by which to rate, you know, the intensity of whatever's happening with you. And I asked her if she thought I should quit drinking alcohol. And she did the little scale. And she's like, no, you don't have a problem. Maybe just cut back. And Tracy, that was actually really defeating for me. And she didn't mean anything bad about it. But because of how we're conditioned to think about alcohol, the answer that made sense to her was just cut back, just try to moderate, just. And I really just wanted her to affirm, yeah, give it a try. No, there's no harm in it. But she didn't know how to do that. And 
yeah, it was really defeating for me as someone who really wanted a permission slip to quit without without the label of addict or um or whatever yes. other label. And she didn't give it to me. And it was it was really hard. And I stayed drinking a lot longer than I probably instinctually wanted to, just because of this like oopsie that my my therapist made. Yeah. It's very black and white, right? Mm-hmm. You either have no problem at all, or you have substance use disorder. And there's really, like you said, no gray area. But again, you listen to your intuition. And your intuition was telling you, I could be better. I could feel better. Certainly. And my intuition was right. I, and I've not drank for seven years. And the, the level of creativity, productivity, emotional well-being and emotional resilience and happiness and all of these things that I used to grasp for and think that maybe there was something wrong with me because I was doing all the right things but not quite getting it all of a the sudden they're available to me or they're they're happening it's happening and I'm so glad I listened to that intuition that tiny nudge even though it was scary because it's offered me a life that I could never have had before So I'm curious, what happened to your social relationships when you gave up alcohol? Mm, Great question. Some of them, well, first of all, I tried to be the cool girl and still kind of stay with that crowd and keep doing the same things, just not drinking. And I found out really quickly that those things that I thought were fun with alcohol, without alcohol, they were actually very dull and boring. So I didn't have the stomach to stay out until 11 p.m. and listen to people yell at the top of their lungs over music. It just was completely debilitating. And so I realized like I can't actually keep doing some of those same things. There were a few activities that I could I could hang with, but for the most part, I realized that the way I wanted to socialize was completely different. And unless my friends were going to come and do some of those activities like going on walks or going out to meals that didn't involve, you know, a tray of margaritas, I couldn't quite hang with them anymore. And so slowly I started to edge back But it also created space for me to do new activities that actually did authentically feel fulfilling and stimulating and exciting for me. And that's where I started magically just meeting these new people that I thought didn't exist before. I was quite certain I would be a social outcast with no friends. And wouldn't you know, when you start to kind of open up the blinders and see life from a broader perspective, there were droves of people like me who made amazing friends. And Now I have deeper, more congruent, more supportive friendships than I ever had in 27 years of my life, 30 years of my life before. And that feels really good. No, I mean, I I can completely resonate with that. Mm -hmm. And what I always say, too, is our best purposes give meaning to our past. And so you took something that you struggled with, and now you are helping others who are also struggling with it. And now you've got this brilliant book, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which would yeah, have never happened. Never, never would have happened if I wouldn't have listened to my intuition and wouldn't have leaned into some of the gifts that I used to think were curses. And it's really cool. And I just like love the work that I do. And I think that I'm I'm just called at this point to keep sharing this message with anyone who I think it will resonate with just because it's had such a transformation on my life to have these realizations about myself, I feel like it's just my moral duty to share it with anyone who I think it would be beneficial for. So I always talk about positive emotion, you know, versus negative emotion. And for the ADHD brain, I'm sorry, 
there's a bunch of negative emotion. We're just not going to do it, right? Mm -hmm. We can't physically do it. Versus with positive emotion, we can do anything. And one of the things that I love that you do is your use of words. So instead of restriction, freedom. Instead of problem, opportunity. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. And, you know, I always wonder if I sound like this girl who's just like this head in the clouds, Pollyanna, happy-go-lucky person. But you sound like re- me. Thank you. Good. That's a, this, is, this is why we're here today. And it's, it's also, it's not only by choice, but it's by, I, I didn't talk like this when I was drinking. I was kind of like a little more Eeyore-like and a little more like, woe is me all the time. And all of a sudden, I realized I can keep looking at this with a shitty attitude, or I can decide what is the possibility that's attached to this. And instead of saying I can't drink anymore because of X, Y, Z, because it makes me, you know, whatever, I decided I don't want to drink. I'm choosing not to drink. And I really got firm about the way that I chose to look at things and the way that I chose to talk about things. And every time I catch myself in one of those, I'll just call them your statements, where it sounds very downtrodden and very negatively focused, I pause and I, I rearrange it to where I'm talking about I'm free from alcohol, I'm alcohol-free. Mm-hmm. And I say it, I put it, even when I say it aloud, I try to think of the tone at which I'm saying things. So I could say, I'm not drinking right now, or I'm not drinking right now, and really make it a joyful thing that I'm doing. And I really decided that if I could take this positive focus at and look at all of the opportunity that being alcohol-free, choosing not to drink offered me, then I would start to just live a better life. And even if it is a little Pollyanna, who cares? Because it feels so much better than what was happening before, you know? Yeah. And again, it's all, it's all about what feels good, what feels better, right? Right, right. I absolutely love that. And I love that just even the tone of your book, this is, it's not about lack. It's not about shame. You know, it's not about having to do anything. Like you said, it's about choosing to do it. And that is so much more freeing. And I know for those of us with ADHD, like freedom is so important to us. We do not want to be told what to do. We do not. No, no, no. Yeah. No, I really love it. So What is it about you and your ADHD that makes you good at what you do? Ooh, I think it's because when I get to communicate with someone, there's like this internal Rolodex of solutions that I've amassed all throughout the years, solutions, tools. And as soon as someone starts talking to me, if they ask me a question or tell me a problem, I can't do this for myself, by the way, Tracy. If I have a problem, there's no solution and the world <laughs> and the world is ending. That's the only time when I get negative, when I'm like in my own spiral. But if you come to me in a spiral, all of a sudden the ADHD brain turns on and that Rolodex goes, and I can find, I know exactly what tools I can share with you. And it feels, I, so, I do still have to figure out how to slow it down because sometimes I get like so excited to share things. But I love when that part of my brain comes online. It's just my genius. And all of a sudden, I know what to say, what to do, what, how to help someone else. And it makes me a great coach. It makes me a great speaker. It makes me great at connecting with people. And it just makes me feel like I found my purpose in my place. And I, I, I love when that little Rolodex comes online. So I'm curious, were you always like that? I think that I probably was. 
And I didn't notice it until I started putting myself in situations where it was allowed to come on. I think in grad school is probably when I did start noticing it because that's where I finally got to start having more intelligent, sophisticated conversations with a group of people that was more concentrated and more like me. And ever since then, I've been refining and honing what that group looks like. And yeah, it's really interesting to feel it come online and just, it just feels very powerful and like where I'm supposed to be, even when it is a little overwhelming. Were you always mission-driven, even though you might not have known what the mission was? Mm. I think so, because I've always known that I was here to do something important, even when I didn't know what the important thing was, exactly. Amanda, I love hearing that because it's how I've always felt, but it's not something that you can say out loud, right? No, I mean, no, really? especially when you grow up in a cornfield, like nobody's going to understand so that. The hell are you, right? Uh-huh. But literally, I think most of us come out of the womb, as long as we don't have bucket loads of trauma, right? That, mm-hmm. uh, you know, overshadows um, this, this feeling. And we just have this belief and feeling that we're meant to do something. Oh, I hate to use the word big. But what's big, right? So something big to help other people. Yeah. And I think if ADHD women really ask themselves that question, most of us feel that way, that there's just more to do, right? Mm -hmm. We're not just going to do the nine to five job. And then when we're done after 30 or 40 years, retire off into the sunset. Mm -hmm. There's yeah. just so many interests and there's so many things that we are interested in that we want to help in that we're, you know, and sometimes it's not that we want to help, right? We're just interested. Yeah. But I love hearing that. And I love hearing when women will say, ADHD women will say that out loud because we then give permission for other ADHD women to think about it and say, you know what? I've always had that feeling about myself too. And, and listening to that, I think, is what made you consider, hmm. Should I just stop drinking? Yeah. Should I, Can I share, share one little profound yeah. moment before we there. end? Because I think based on what you just said, I share this later on in the book, but I, it's one of the most profound moments of my life. And I might even get choked up just thinking about it because it's so special that, you know, I was maybe 90 days, six months into not drinking. And I was in the shower and I was listening to a podcast. And one of those brilliant moments happened when the podcast made me think of something and it kind of just like gave me this intuitive download and I'm standing under the stream of water and I hear this voice and it says, Amanda, you are meant to do big things in this world, but I can't see you doing them with alcohol in the picture. And I felt this rush of heat come over my body. I fell to the bottom of my shower, it kind of just on all fours because it felt so true. And it was like this voice that had been inside of me my entire life that finally I was acknowledging it. And accepting it. And nothing has ever felt so true in my life. And I can't explain what happened in that moment. But I thought, yes, yep, you're right. And I don't know what the big thing is. I have no clue. And this is really weird. And I'm sobbing in my shower. But I believe it so fervently that I will be damned if I don't figure out what it is. And that was the moment that I decided that I was going to just live to my fullest without without anything diluting me. And that's what alcohol did. It diluted me in some way. And so anyone listening to this, like if this is the last, if you shut off the show, don't do that. But if you shut off the show right now, 
I just want you to hear that I think you are probably meant to do big things and that maybe alcohol is getting in the way if you have been interested this entire time. I just think that you have so much more power that's available to you if you would explore what it would be like to live at full force and full capacity all time because you are powerful as hell and the world deserves to see that and you deserve to feel that. Love it. So how many days had you not been drinking when that happened? I'm thinking of the timeline. I'm thinking that that was right around 90 days to six months, somewhere in that window. And what was the, you say it in your book, what is the period of time when if you can get through that, it gets so much easier? 90 days. You got to get to that 90 to 100 day mark. I think so many many folks, yeah, yeah, take, take, so many people try to take like a 30 or a 21 day, which is great. But oh my goodness, you do not feel the magic until you've really gotten a little bit of a stride under you. And that really happens for most people around 90 to 100 days. You know, it's interesting. I'm listening to you speak here and I am surprisingly perfectly fine when it comes to moderation around alcohol. You know, maybe not in college so much, but yep. I figured it out. And right you know, passage. Right. However, what I have noticed is despite the fact that I can have, you know, one drink on a Saturday and then maybe not have another drink, I, I'm a social drinker. Like I would never, you know, drink by myself. But if everybody else is having a drink, I'll have a drink. However, I have noticed that I feel less and less good even after having one drink. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, I'm a cocktail girl, cocktail person. So I don't know, is it, I tend to like cocktails with citrus. Mm-hmm. So um, lime juice, lemon juice. Yep. I don't know if it's the citrus. I don't know if it's the alcohol. I don't know if it's the sugar. And I've been trying to figure that out over the last, I'd say, three years. But I'm sitting here listening to you talk and I'm thinking, who cares what it is? You know, after you have even one drink and what the hell with drinks being $20 for a drink now, right? It's also ridiculously expensive. It always makes the bill way higher. Like, why the hell am I drinking? I think you've inspired me to just say, you know what? I'm not doing it anymore. Give it a try. I think that yeah. you will find that your brain is even more brilliant than it is right now. And once you see it, you won't be able to unsee it. And we need, we need, like, we well, already love the brilliance. We know yes. that, right? Of course. And it just slows you down. I think that you'll be really surprised as to what happens. And I would love to hear, like, what magic it turns on for you because you're already so brilliant as it is. But what if you let yourself shine that extra just little bit that could really tip the scales in a different way. Yeah. And there is also some, I'm very oppositional, right? Challenging uh-huh. the status quo is my number one. Um, Me too. Oh, yeah. So I almost like the idea of the social piece, right? All your friends are still doing it, but I don't have to. Yeah. I don't need that. Yeah. It feels, it feels very powerful, honestly, to be in a room with people who need the drink and be like, I'm okay. I'll I'll go on the dance floor without it. Watch me. Right. Just watch me. Right. Sparkling water. And then I'll feel great when I go home and I'll feel great the next morning. Yeah. It feels pretty. It's very rebellious in the most fun way. And I think that actually is the piece that will help a lot of us maybe flip our whole idea about drinking, right? Is that the rebellion in it by saying, oh, that's what society does. Well, I'm choosing something different and frankly, usually better for myself. Yes. Very powerful. Okay. So what do you think the key to living successfully with ADHD is? I feel for me, 
that the key has been to embrace it as my superpower and find the way that that superpower operates best for me and say, screw everything else. You know, I don't care if it's, you know, I, I find that, and I think this is a TikTok trend now, that I am more productive when I wear my tennis shoes in the house. So what? Then I'll wear, then that's what I do. Then that's what works for me. I don't care if it's weird and strained. I'm a magical unicorn. I embrace that. And I think that has been my key to success, to find these little eccentric, strange things that make me feel turned on, not in a sexual way necessarily, right. but just like turned turned up and turned on and going with it. Like, who cares that I have 15 post-it note lists? Like, that's my magic superpower. That's how I get shit done. And I've got shit to get done in the world. So I'm going to do whatever works for me. I love it. Okay, do you have a number one ADHD workaround? All those post-it notes? Oh, you know, I think it is. I I love an analog checklist, but really that I I call it tennis shoe time. And I don't know if I coined that or made it up. But I feel so much more get up and go when I'm wearing tennis shoes in my house. And it's a really strange, like, I'll be so much more productive. That is so funny. So I was just in New York for like five weeks, did not plan on being there. But just given circumstances, I ended up there for five weeks. I bought five pairs of shoes because we were literally going from Flatiron to the Upper West Side, sometimes a couple times a day. We were trying to find my daughter an apartment for law school. Uh and. I was in pain all the time. I literally, of those five pairs of shoes, two of them were Birkenstocks. I could not find a comfortable pair of shoes. I went to go get my hair cut and there was this beautiful woman who was in a, and it was hot too, right? She was in this long black linen dress and she had tennis shoes on. Yes. And I asked her, I said, is that the key? Do I need to go get tennis shoes? Like, I don't know anything. Like, what's what's like stylish tennis shoes? Like, I don't know. She goes, walk across the street to New Balance and go get a pair there. I bought a pair of New Balance tennis shoes. And just like you said, I never wear tennis shoes. Never, uh-huh. unless I'm working out. I have been wearing them all the time. I love them. So yes. I think it's hilarious that you yeah. brought this up. It's a random hack. Random hack that just makes me feel wear tennis like shoes. I got an edge. Yep. Wear tennis shoes. Okay, so Amanda, where can people find you if they want to know more about you, what you do? Where can they find your book? Tell us all the all the information, the details. You can get the book wherever books are sold. I read the audiobook, which was so fun. Um, so you can was get it audio. Hard? I loved it. It was like that little energetic kid part of me that always wanted to read the longest paragraph. And suddenly I had an 18-hour paragraph that was assigned just to me. So it was not exhausting. No, I loved it. It was I it was exhilarating. Oh, I'm I so mean, happy to hear that. I have to go do that. I'm going to go back to New York in October. And I have fun. And I've heard that it's really exhausting. But again, mindset, right? Yeah. I mean, I was so excited to do it. I just looked at it as like, this is my moment to read aloud. And I was I was dead tired at the end of the day. Yes. But like in the moment, I was lit up and exhilarated. So I'm sending you that vibe for doing yours because it's so fun. I'm taking it. So audiobook, Kindle, paperback, anywhere you get books. And I am everywhere on the internet at Amanda Kuda. So that's K-U-D-A. Instagram, TikTok, find me, come say hello. And it's coming out next Tuesday, right? Yeah, October 3rd. You got it. Yeah, next Tuesday, by the time this airs, it'll be out. So you'll be able to go get it. Hooray. And one of the things that I should have said at the beginning, and I did not say, I just want you to know how beautifully written that book is. It Thank is, you. I, you're, you're just a great writer. Oh. And so congratulations. You know, just the stories and how you really hook people in And then the way you present this whole idea of what if I don't drink and how to go about actually making that a reality. 
And just all of the questions that you ask around why you might want to consider that. It's a brilliant book. I and I mean that sincerely. Oh, thank you, Tracy. I that that warms my heart. I super appreciate it. And please, please, please look me up when you come to Austin so we can go wear our tennis shoes and I can give you a big squeeze. And not drink. Yes. <laughs> anyway, Amanda, thank you so much for spending time with us here today. Absolutely. Thank you, Tracy. Absolutely. So that's what I have for you for this week. If you like this episode with Amanda, please let us know by leaving a review. Our goal is to change the conversation around ADHD, helping as many women as we can discover, what are we trying to do? Wait a minute. Hold on. I need to read this because I can't. Our goal is to change the conversation around ADHD, helping as many women as we possibly can learn how their ADHD brains work so that they too may discover their amazing strengths. I've only said that for like four years and I still can't do it all the time. Anyway, your reviews really help. As always, you're listening to ADHD for Smartass Women. Come join me over at tracyoutsuka.com. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you here next week. You've been listening to the ADHD for Smartass Women podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Outsuka, and we're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Not coincidentally, ADHD for Smartass Women, it's also the name of our free Facebook group. We're a totally smartass community of successful, ambitious women who share our ADHD wins, questions, and workarounds. Join us at tracyoutsuka.com where you can also find more information on our Your ADHD Brain is A-OK system. I spy a happier life for us, and I'll see you again next week.